What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. If you've already heard about the two great companies which support this show, CoinKite and River, skip ahead 70 seconds. If not, permit me that time to tell you why they might be of interest to you. CoinKite offers the products you need to securely store and use your Bitcoin. Recent events have once again shown, for many painfully, why it's so important to get your Bitcoin off exchanges or any other third party and take custody of them yourself. Do not wait to be another victim of their incompetent, fraudulent, or malicious behavior. The whole point of Bitcoin is to eliminate counterparty risk and avail of the unique freedom which that provides. The cold card is a time-tested, Bitcoin-only hardware wallet for doing just that. Taking self-custody may seem intimidating at first, but there are many resources available to guide you every step of the way and help you to experience just how empowering and liberating taking back control of your money can be. To get more info about their excellent lineup of products, visit coinkite.com. River allows you to securely buy Bitcoin, zero fee dollar cost average, and purchase hosted mining rigs. Also, their Lightning service enables developers and companies to integrate Lightning payments into their applications without having to run any Lightning infrastructure themselves. I recommend River because of their dedication to service, stellar team, and custom approach to building a next-generation financial services business on Bitcoin. To get started, visit river.com today. Let's do it. There we go. We're being live-streamed. Right Bitcoin on. Deadpool. Thanks for joining me, man. I'm uh, looking forward to chatting. Same. Likewise. So uh, this came about because I shot out one of the tweets that I've been doing lately about you know, who wants to come on and just shoot the shit. And you hit me up and said you had uh, perhaps some interesting things to talk about or your rabbit hole journey and what, you know, kind of lifestyle things that have changed since then. So do you want to hit me with uh, a kind of intro and then we'll just roll into whatever? Sure. Um, yeah. I, at the time when you sent out that tweet and then, and then scheduled me to do this, it was a little bit before the FTX stuff started to happen. So it was kind of at a lull in the bear market and there wasn't a lot happening. So you were reaching out to all the D-listers such as myself. That's not, that's actually not the case. That's actually not the case. I prefer doing these ones. You know, I, I, if you look back on a lot of the stuff I've done recently and like, I love all the, let's say known entities in Bitcoin. Um, but the, you know, they get interviewed so many times and everyone kind of knows their shtick. And while I do feel like, uh, well, I have conversations with people cause I think, I'm getting something that I can't get anywhere else. I mean, that's the whole reason why I do the podcast. But uh, that being said, I still like, there's nothing better to me than hitting up like some random pleb somewhere in the world that nobody knows about, but who is a Bitcoiner. And the conversation just ends up being great every single time. So um, it ain't about that, motherfucker. Cool. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure this will turn out to be a good conversation. Interesting to say the least. No pressure. But I, I you know, some of your... Um, some of the people that you've had on that do make the rounds, I've loved your interview with them. And uh, like Greg Foss, for instance, I thought that was a really great podcast you guys did together. That was the reason I got back on Twitter was because I wanted to send Greg a message and say, <laughs> dude, thank you for that. That was a great interview you did with John. Well, I so thank you for that, that John. I, I really you. like thank your you. pod. I think you're a good interviewer. And like out of the, all the Bitcoin podcasts, like I got to say yours is my favorite. I, I'm not a big podcast person. I listen to one here and there. If someone interesting comes up that I want to mm -hmm. hear, um, but I really like yours. I think you do a really good, uh, I, I like the words you use and the order you put them in and the way you talk to your interviewees is really good. So, well, thank you very much, man. I appreciate that. And that's an interesting, uh, I like that the words you use and the order you put them in. That's a, it's <laughs> a nice compliment. <laughs> So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about myself and my journey to sure. Bitcoin, and then maybe that'll uh, get the conversation going a little bit. 
Sure. So um, I thought a lot about this over the past couple of weeks, and I'm really not sure exactly what details to include, but I guess I'll just get started with that. I think the relevant part of my journey starts back in like the Ron Paul days, because I was, that was my first introduction to libertarianism. It's when Austrian economics got put on my radar. Mm. And then I started to go down those rabbit holes, right? I started to read uh, Mises and Rothbard and Hayek, Thomas Sowell. Um, and I'm sure there are others that I'm forgetting. And uh, I found that stuff really interesting and really compelling. Um, and and I, I still do, but then I would say there was a lull for several years uh, where I had kind of, you know, spent my time reading all those books and absorbing a lot of that information. And then I stopped reading those books because I already had read a lot of them. And it kind of dropped off my radar in part because um, I guess in part because those values that I saw in there uh, were hard, were hard to like express in the fiat world as I was experiencing it. And I kind of found it a little bit depressing, right? It's like, you know, the truth about the gold standard and how the money system is rigged, but you're like, well, it's not going to come back. They're not going to mm. willingly go back on some gold standard. And, and even if they do, like they already, central banking already defeated the gold standard like a hundred years ago. It's not it can't magically win this fight again, at least not in any kind of long-term stable way. Central banking's already beat that. We need a, we need a better solution to that. Um, and in these years I'm talking about, I'd say I got into, you know, the Ron Paul, like that's 2006 or 2008, right? Mm. So actually Bitcoin came about it around then. I was not aware of it at first. Several years later, I uh, discovered Bitcoin. I found an email from my brother that I think was from 2013 where we were chatting. And uh, he says, have you heard of this Bitcoin thing? And he sends me some link. And I said, yeah, I've heard of it. I don't have time to pay attention to it right now. A year or two later, a friend of mine uh, from my hometown um, sold me a little bit. And so I got that and I was really interested in it, you know, and that was around the time um, I was actually making money and was able to invest in stuff. And then I held that for a few years and didn't really, I didn't really go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole until sometime in 2017. I was, I was working uh, um, a few months contract in the Midwest somewhere and I read the white paper and it just blew my mind. Like, I mean, just reading the first, reading the abstract of it. I remember sitting in this little studio apartment I was sub, subleasing and I read the abstract and the first few paragraphs, I'm just going like, <laughs> you know, to myself in, in, in my apartment. Um, and then I get to the end, I read all the references off of that and I start reading the references of the references. I mean, I would love to talk more about the white paper. I think it's super fascinating. There's kind of, you know, multiple opinions on that. Some people say like, you should read it. Some people are like, don't suggest that people read that people can't read technical things. I think people should read it. All you got to read is the abstract in the first few paragraphs. It tells you everything it's about. Absolutely should read it. Yeah. That's absurd to suggest people not read it. <laughs> I know it, it's, it's crazy to me. And you don't have to have a technical background to understand the, the first few paragraphs. I mean, maybe reading on it will get confusing. And if you're not used to reading technical literature or scientific literature at all. It might seem a little weird, but for sure people should read it. I highly recommend it. And, and have you gone through much of the references in that paper? Long time ago, not recently. But, yeah. but they're fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. Like really fascinating. It struck me that 
they're not like any other scientific literature that I'd ever read before. I've read a lot of scientific literature. What, what, what was the difference? It just, it has just kind of weird things. Like there's a couple papers that are referenced by uh, Haber and Stornetta. I think Haber is on two or three references and Stornetta is on one or two. But these guys, when you pull up their papers, it says uh, their names. And then instead of having like a bunch of university affiliations or such, which you normally see, it just says, uh, what does it say? I have screenshots of it. It says like Bell, Belcor. That's all it says. Belcor is, was formerly known as Bell Labs, which is named after Alexander Graham Bell. It's a telecommunications basically think tank. They invented a lot of the technologies that um, and I guess went into the internet and communications protocols, information sharing protocols. And they, they would, for you know, decades, they would just go out and find really smart people and fund them to do research for them in, in this area. Like for instance, they, I know they got the guy who came up with support vector machines, which is one of a handful of, uh, of actually useful machine learning algorithms. And they got that guy and they had him do research for them. So that, that was like kind of the first thing I noticed when I looked at it, it just didn't strike me at face value like other papers that I'd seen. And then as you go through, there's weird quotes. Like, um, I also have a screenshot, but they have quotes from, uh, from Shakespeare plays, such as this quote from the, the Rape of Lucrece, where it says, time's glory is to calm contending kings, to unmask falsehood and bring truth to light, to stamp the seal of time in aged things, to wake the morn and sentinel the night, to wrong the wronger till he render right. I've never seen stuff like this in, in a... <laughs> published scientific paper before it's ominous do you remember what context that particular quote was in in the paper because like why why did they invoke it or why did they include it so it's literally the first thing below the abstract in how to timestamp a digital document and why are they using that quote i mean any I, I don't i don't know, have a great answer to that except to say uh, you'll notice that the, the references in the Bitcoin white paper have a lot to do with how to timestamp digital documents. Right, there's multiple right. ones that reference that, right? There's there's, uh, there's four or five of them, right? And then you four got or five of them, exactly. and die and yeah. For sure, right? So, I mean, obviously, once you kind of understand Bitcoin, you understand like why that was such an important piece of the puzzle for, for Satoshi, yeah. right? Um, well, and, sure, there, there you go then, right? Like if maybe that quote is just a, a reference to the importance of time in revealing and propagating truth. And, you know, if you're putting something together, that's helpful at timestamping, then you're, you know, you're in the same, in the same arena, basically. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, for sure. Just to share one more that I had, sure. uh, uh, in another paper, they have, they have this quote that just says, who will guard the guards themselves. Mm. I love that. It's not even from the Bitcoin white paper. These are from other ones that are referenced. So it's it's like as you go down the rabbit hole, you start to see this. It didn't begin there or in there. It's this chain of connected things going back decades and decades. David mm. Chom in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, all these like cryptographic protocols that got developed around that time and earlier as well. Um, so, I, so anyway, I, that was a little bit of a side, but um, I found all that literature like pretty fascinating and way more, way more interesting than any other scientific literature I'd ever read before. So, um, uh, yeah, so at that time, um, I got really into it and I invested a little bit more 
perhaps at that time, but I was, I was traveling and I didn't, I didn't have any money to invest in that. And I didn't have a lot more of time to invest in that either. Went to South America for a long time between 2014 and 2018. I probably spent a, at least a year in South America. Um, I was really making it my goal to move down there. Um, and I was almost successful, but, uh, things just didn't go that way. I ended up coming back in 2018 to do some work, uh, cause I ran out of money. And, uh, then I hooked up with my wife, uh, then, and we started dating and we had a kid and we got married. And so my life just went a different direction and that's good. You know, I'm, it's good in the sense that I was, I was heading for a trajectory that I wasn't supposed to go down and then. I was corrected gracefully. Mm -hmm. So I'm very happy with that. Um, and then, and then around that time too, 2018 to 2020, I, I really wanted to get out of the kind of fiat jobs that I was working in. I was working a research job at that time and I wanted to do something in Bitcoin, which was a little bit of a dilemma for me because I wanted to get out of uh, the office in the first place. I didn't want to be on computers anymore. So I didn't know exactly what to do because I, I kept running into like, oh, I, I mean, like I can program, I could get, I, you know, I could jump on projects, but it's like, but I don't want to be on a computer. So uh, after I had my daughter, my wife had my daughter about, uh, about a year and a half ago, um, I left my job that I was working in there and I started basically volunteering at a local farm, learning to slaughter animals and then also volunteering uh, as a butcher's apprentice at a local butcher shop to learn how to do whole animal butchery and those things are connected because I'm, I've been working as a volunteer for local farms initially and then now I've kind of developed to where I'm working on the custom exempt market this is what they call it in California anyway which basically means um, it's for individual the animal it's not for sale. The individual couldn't take the pieces that I give back to them and sell them to anybody that would be illegal because I'm not a USDA slaughter facility or anything like that. Right. And then you also have to take those animal carcasses to a facility that is inspected and can process them. So um, <laughs> I guess uh, that's kind of takes me pretty current. And, and I also would like to just add to that. I felt like this is a good way for me to actually contribute to Bitcoin without being a programmer per se. Cause the only other thing I could really think of is just like evangelism, you know, trying to help people get onboarded. And I'm, I, you know, I'm of course, orange pilling people all the time and, and trying to help people self custody and understand what's going on. Um, but also it's, you know, there's this big hole, which is the Bitcoin economy. And yeah, yeah, I can find some things I can buy for Bitcoin, but like a pair of jade earrings, I don't need that. It's a novelty for me to pay Bitcoin for that, but I don't need it. I need to pay rent. I need to pay for food. And I need to pay for, for energy and transportation, right? And, and that's like actually a really difficult problem to solve. Like I can go to some of these farmers that I've met and some of them are really interested in Bitcoin and, and have occasionally accepted small amounts of Bitcoin from me, but they're cash flowing a business and nobody else accepts Bitcoin. So they can't cash flow the Bitcoin to somebody else and get their grain feed and whatever else they're giving their poultry and you know, alfalfa for their, for their uh, ruminants, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought for me, it is one way where I can accept Bitcoin. I want Bitcoin. I can give people discounts and incentivize them to pay me in Bitcoin. And I'm still kind of building up to this, to be totally honest. You know, my, my plan is by the beginning of next year, I want to register a mobile kill truck 
that can do these custom exempt kills on the properties of farmers for them, take them to a, to a custom exempt processing facility, and they can pay me at least in Bitcoin, right? It's, it's also hard because I have cash flow problems too. So I've been working hard to set myself up in such a way that I can accept Bitcoin and it's not a problem to me. Right. Well, I got a bunch of questions, but you know, just way back before we dig into that stuff, um, you know, the comment, who's going to guard the guards? It's, this is why it's so obvious. There's, there's two acts, you know, because a lot of times I talk about and many others have as well, like the ethic that, you know, is imbued into Bitcoin and emanates out from Bitcoin. And some people have a problem with that, right? It's just a technology. There's, not, there's no morality involved in it. But in two, two ways, I think that's wrong. One, just strictly the motivation of the technologists and the researchers and the scientists in what they built in terms of the different components of that ultimately ended up in Bitcoin. I mean, whether we're looking at encryption and if you're someone who's working on that, I mean, I know some came from, you know, the, the, the state and the military, but still, even from their perspective, they're trying to inhibit somebody else from invading their privacy, which there's an ethic in that. And that is that I should be able to have privacy for my own information. And so that's a technology that was motivated by a particular ethic. And the same is true for many different components. And then not only that, but you do have explicit allusions to those ethics as i.e. The, the one you just shared, who's going to guard the guards or, you know, Satoshi himself, chancellor on the brink, like both from the technological per, uh, at, you know perspective and through the explicit motivations that some of these uh, people shared when they released or, you know, uh, communicated what they developed, it's clear that there's an ethic in them. And I think that ethic is very pronounced in Bitcoin and seems to be propagating out into those people who interact with it the most, which is very interesting to me. Um, the other thing is like, I think it's, it's so interesting in the last couple of years, how let's, let's just broadly, broadly speaking, say Bitcoin culture has really started to flourish, let's say. And as you say, I mean, the, the whole point is that not, you know, a circular economy, a parallel economy must develop for this to really become a thing. Because that's the whole point is to, you know, be transacting, saving everything in Bitcoin. And I think it's awesome that it's it's hopped out of purely like the, you know, the monetary, the economic, the technological, like the the initial stuff. And now it's starting to broaden out to people that are just providing goods and services, be it, you know, cattle or butchery or wine or, you know, whatever. And they're starting to accept Bitcoin. And they're even able to start to pay some of their, you know, their own suppliers or their own inputs in Bitcoin. And uh, this is how, I mean, this, this is what we want. And first it's tiny and first it's difficult to stitch together. And then it starts to grow out from there. And the benefits of doing so become so apparent that other people are sucked in as a result of that. You know, I, I don't evangelize, you know, at all or try to orange pill anyone, in, in, you know, anymore. Because I think that, that the best way to orange pill people is just to be an example of how much better it is to have Bitcoin as your frame of reference, operate in the Bitcoin economy, have that degree of freedom and prosperity and peace and security and stability in your life. And, you know, people will will, will come and run in once they observe that. And um, because it's so hard to persuade people one on one because uh, people are so stuck in their own perspective and their own worldview. But they, everyone's looking out on the world all the time to think, how can I get ahead? How can I make life better for myself? And if they see examples of people doing that, the natural next question is, well, how are they doing it? 
what is the thing that's that's causing that change or or, or in, empowering or enabling them in that way and for a lot of us it's you know there's many multifaceted of course but bitcoin is a big one and i think that that that's becoming more and more apparent as the circular economy and the culture grows in activities like the ones that that you're now engaged in um what's it like you know going from statistician to butcher you know i that pretty much a 180 on on what your work looks like yeah it was I mean it was a great relief for me my body got healthier when I wasn't in an office and in a chair all day um my mind got healthier I get to work outside I mean there's some unpleasant stuff it can be a humble job well that's slaughtering chicken or something even you know slaughtering larger animals is is a, a dirty humble job and maybe I deserve that um but uh, overall, say, I mean, it's why been- Why do you say that? Oh, I don't know. Build up good karma. Maybe I expended all my good karma in my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it has been really, really good. I mean, just for me personally, I, I love doing it. I wouldn't say I love slaughtering animals. There's definitely a part of that which is really unpleasant. It stings. Um, and I like animals. You know? But uh, it, it is also a job that needs to be done. And like, I don't, um, if I could just make it so that the actual slaughter of an animal happened and I didn't have to deal with that. And I could just deal with, with the carcass, the lifeless carcass where the consciousness has already left it. Mm. I would do that just like everybody else does when they go to the grocery store. Right. But somebody actually has to go and do that. And, uh, and it's amazing the transformation that takes place from the field where I go and harvest animals to the table where nobody else has any idea about what happened there. And it's just smiles and food and culture and family and friends and all of that, you know? So I, I like, I like being able to do that. I feel like it's some, it's a, it's a real service I can do for all the people around me. You know, I can do the dirty job and let other people be happy Yeah, and not have to absorb that. And some people shouldn't absorb that to be totally honest. I'm good at it. Yeah. I, some other people that I've uh, worked with and everything, I, I'm surprised to find like they want to do the butchery. They don't want to do the slaughter. I'm like, really? Because that's what I really excelled at. And that's what I enjoyed doing. As much as like I say, and I'm being genuine, I don't really like killing the animals. Mm. You know, it's interesting. And I, I don't know, I basically know nothing about like kosher and how that works, but I can really see uh, the role of someone who performs that activity for people, how, why it became kind of an elevated or important role in society. Right. Because, and you know, and the antithesis would be like the factory farm of today where there's just thousands of, of fucking cattle and their life is horrible and they're jabbed up with everything. And when it t- come times to go, it's totally unceremonial. And they just, you know, they get killed, they get chopped up, put on an assembly line out to the grocery store or whatever. But, you know, it, it, I revere life as well. And I love animals as well. And I think being face to face with the sacrifice required to um, perpetuate your own life uh, changes. Well, I mean, if nothing else should give you a greater appreciation for your life and what you're doing with your limited resources, time, energy, and otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's something that's been totally lost. And that in itself is a very humbling thing, right? To know like something you love, something you revere, consciousness, life, nature, you just ended it. And you need to, you need to rationalize that in your own mind. You need to come to grips with that. You need to, are you not going to show some kind of appreciation through your own actions for that sacrifice. And I think, you know, my only experience directly with it is hunting. Um, but it's a, it's a kind of a similar thing, you know, on a, on a less frequent 
uh, scale, of course. But to me, it, 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 it was impactful, you know, and I did want to figure out how I was going to come to grips or develop a, a workable perspective on that. And if I'm not going to be the one to do it, I would, I definitely would like someone who treats that action with the proper reverence and with the proper procedure and with the proper ritual, you know, as a peace of mind for me to know that it's being done in, in a, even though I'm not going to completely relinquish, you know, my responsibility for demanding that action, of course, I'm, I, I still take responsibility for my own demand there. But if it has to be done, if I've, I've decided that 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 is in line with, you know, well, with what I want to have happen, right? If, if I decide that that's the nourishment that I want to use for my own sustenance, then I want to make sure it's being done in as proper way as possible. And so in that sense, like, I can see why there's an emphasis placed on the person who's doing it. Are, are they doing it properly? Are they doing it with the right mindset? Are they approaching it properly? Are, are, are they capable, like you just said, of tolerating all that, you know, being so face-to-face -face with that sacrifice all the time? Like, it's, it's almost like um, you hear about psychologists, right? And all day, every day, they're getting like people's problems. And a lot of psychologists need sessions with their peers, with their, you know, with their psychologist peers to kind of like, help them deal with all the darkness basically that they're con confronted with on a daily basis. And so it really is a tremendous, you know, responsibility and probably uh, only one that, you know, a select few can actually even take because of the, the burden it places on them. If they're doing it properly, again, I'm sure a lot of people do it mindlessly and they, 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 they assume no burden whatsoever, but if you do have that reverence and you do assume a type of burden for the, for the task, you want to make sure, um, well, the only people that are capable of doing that will do it. And it sounds like that's kind of the journey that that you're on, perhaps. Definitely. Um, and I think like as just like a regular consumer, you know, people shouldn't feel like I have to be the person that slaughters and sees all this. Like you, you, you deserve to have somebody out there that's actually doing the work according to your principles, too. And that's another reason why I got into this specifically. And one reason I enjoy it is because I get to basically guarantee that those things that, that you described are happening. You know what I mean? Um, and I know the farmers personally, you know, who loves the animals the most, the farmers, they love mm -hmm. those animals. Like they don't want to be around when I slaughter them often. Um, they fed them really well, you know, but uh, yeah, it's, it, uh, it is definitely like that. And the people that, the people that do approach it, it's not just factory farmers. It's not like everybody that's on an assembly line is assembly line doing meat processing or something is a psychopath. Those people exist out there, but they're acting out of basically unconsciousness, in my opinion. Yeah. Because you can't, you just like, you can't be conscious and be approaching life in that way. I mean, the animal's life, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I wanted to go back really quick to, before I forget it, you were saying the values of Bitcoin and how there's something inherent in there. And people say it's just a technology. It doesn't have values. But like the story that I told, I started it with the Ron Paul libertarianism and learning about gold and learning about Austrian economics for a reason. I put that down. But then once I discovered Bitcoin, it brought it all back up to me again. Like I got it really fast. It's not random. That's a story you probably hear from a bunch of different people. Yeah. Right. I mean, if that's not, if that's not directly a value system, that's it's, it's, it's certainly a value system that's very compatible with the technology itself. So, so Bitcoin enables me for the first time, really, to actually express those values into the world in a powerful way and to reject the values of the world that I don't like. Uh, 
And it embodies those values too, in the ways that you describe. It's really interesting, right? That it's both of those things. It's a tool that enables you to, to express values into the world. And it seems to have some implicit values in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And it's not random that people that were into Austrian economics, libertarianism, stuff like that, are the people that are finding it first. Like you didn't, you didn't find a bunch of, uh, of like fake communists finding it. I mean, even if they, even if they had an under, they, they don't understand central baking and how, and how that's enabling basically uh, implicit communism, right? In in yeah. in the West right now. Well, I do. It's disturbing. Yeah. Well, that's what's so interesting, and I, I suppose you could say that all human action is imbued with values. Therefore, any product of human action is imbued with certain values as well, because you're motivated by those values to create the product. Now, it could be the case that whatever you create can be used for a multitude of different motivations, which behind them have certain values, right? You create a sword to protect your family. Someone could create a sword to, you know, kill people, for example. But it is very interesting that, you know, in, in particular in Bitcoin's case, that as you say, like it, it's resonant with some of the highest values that we seem to be capable of perceiving. I, I values like truth, values like freedom, values like fairness, you know, and that it's, it's, it is such a, refined instantiation of of those values that no wonder it's attracting people who hold them highly you know whether it be libertarians or austrians or you know uh no no particular ism or or school of thought but just people that for for whom those principles and values have been elevated to the top of the value hierarchy and they see them in their most refined you know most impactful most engageable form in bitcoin and it's of course that that's revolutionary because you're like what how is, you know, not maybe not how is that possible, but isn't it fascinating that very I'm now encountering something that 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 has imbued in them those values and has the capacity to propagate those values, and I can borrow that, you know, I can bring them further into my life through using this thing, and mo more of those values can emerge in the world through more people doing that, like. And, you know, if you've listened to any of my stuff, this is why we often get into the religious realm of things, because that's kind of the the, the function and the, uh, you know, the outcome or the output of religious ideas as well. And it seems to be mm -hmm. the case that those it's the same values having that effect, you know, so mm -hmm. hence why we we get so wrapped up and, and even transformed by engaging with Bitcoin. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I just 100 percent agree with that. I think it's really interesting that those values that you, you stated are like kind of universal things. I think in any ism, if you were to say those things plainly to people, they would agree with those. They, they mm -hmm. think their ism embodies those, those things, truth, right. fairness, honesty, transparency, Love. and stuff like mm -hmm. that. A lot of people feel like that's, that's a part of their, their worldview. And it's surprising to me then that those people are having a hard time finding Bitcoin. I mean, what does that really say? Is that, does that mean that their articulation of those values has some flaws? It must in some capacity. I mean, if we're, if we're right, if we are right in, in observing these values in Bitcoin and even, even our, in our own understanding of them absent, you know, you know, outside of Bitcoin, but I think, you know, and this is why I think so much of our pursuits, you know, in Bitcoin land is motivated around the idea of truth. Like, how can we find, pursue, propagate, orient ourselves around that notion? And it's such a tricky one to nail down, but it does seem that this tool is, a, well, it, <laughs> it's so good at it. 
it verifies its own truth. So it's kind of like a self-contained form of truth that can't be distorted. And I don't think we have many, if any, examples of that, you know, outside of Bitcoin, really. But the fact that it does that for itself, we seem to be able to borrow it in, you know, and, and that's I am perhaps I'm even using that term metaphorically in some way, but we we are able to borrow that into our own perspective, into our own interactions with other people. And it really seems to it seems to be a, a catalyst for generating a perspective that is more grounded in quote unquote truth, whatever you know that may ultimately be. And it may be the case that the the truest truth are those what we call those principles and values of freedom and love and you know I, I don't want to say truth again because it becomes kind of circular but you know what i mean like maybe those mm -hmm. ideas are the things that are most fundamental and therefore anything that helps to inculcate or propagate them would or anything that helps to propagate them would would inculcate a perspective that is most grounded in them and perhaps for those people that you know that you just alluded to i mean i can only think that or one of the potential explanations would be that their perception is distorted in some way. You know, it's distorted by a an idea that is not coherent with, not as coherent with truth as it might be, and that creates a a hierarchy of values that is somewhat off, and that creates a perception that creates motivations that creates actions that are somewhat untethered or 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 distant from a, a truth that a greater truth that they they have access to, and so and and the the fruits of that or the outputs of that are, are actions that are misaligned in some way with with what what, what we might call a, a greater approximation of truth. Hmm. You know, it's, it's tricky territory, obviously, you know, like it, some of these things are very difficult to, to define. And again, they become circular and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. and we always, yeah, I, I always caveat this with like, maybe, maybe we're wrong, but uh, right. <laughs> I, I do think that a lot of us our greatest, you know, orientation or the thing to which we subordinate ourselves most is that notion or idea of truth and perhaps freedom and, and love up there with it. And we just continue to try to tri triangulate in on, on those things and, and use the ideas and the perspectives and the tools that allow us to do so. And it seems like, you know, especially since the last 13 years that, you know, the roads often lead back to this this thing that we call Bitcoin. And uh, I, we're all just kind of grasping at straws, trying to figure this out. And as a result of doing that, right, as a result of attempting to understand something that may be a profound truth, the result, even of just that attempt, is transformation in one's life. And that seems to be very consistent as far as I can tell. And transformation mm -hmm. toward so-called the good, you know, tr or if, if people have a problem with that, what seems to be positive or beneficial transformation in people's lives as a result of engaging in that process, even if you haven't, mm -hmm. uh, you know, clearly or explicitly identified a perfect answer or, or you haven't reached the end of that process, but just the journey, as is so often the case, can be beneficially transformational. And that absolutely seems to be the case with, with, with what's happening here with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. We'll definitely be wrong about a lot of things now and forever. The pursuit of truth is a high ideal. You find it mm. very strong in the Bitcoiner community. And, and like Bitcoiners do not actually agree on everything yeah. at all. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's, 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 it's really funny, isn't it? Um, but uh, there's some core ideals that they, that they share. And Bitcoin allows 
this this trust minimized way for them to interact in this in a way that we've always wanted to. I didn't want to agree with everybody before. It was not my mm-hmm. goal. Mm-hmm. My my goal was to be able to interact with people and to express myself on level ground. Yeah. Exactly. And Bitcoin provides a way to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I w- I've always wanted the freedom to pursue the ideas and the lifestyle that I determined were most valid, you know, that I wanted to pursue. And I wanted to engage with everyone who helped me to refine that perspective so that I could do that optimally. And anything mm-hmm. that impeded my ability to act freely, I was against. And anyone who impeded the, the process of discerning or discovering truth greater, I was not interested in. And 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 that's why it's so awesome to be in Bitcoin. And, you know, I alluded to at the beginning, like my motivations for doing the podcast is because now there's this, you know, growing every day, this community of people that, you know, again, lots of differences, but I think at a minimum, hold those two things equally. It's like, let me act how I determine is best to act for me. I want that degree of freedom. And I don't think anybody should impede my access to it. And I want others who are going to help me refine my perspective. I don't want to be alone in the darkness. I don't want to be alone with my own ignorance. I want to be confronted with the uncomfortable truths and I will take that information. I will construct a, a perspective based on it. And on, I go forward, forward towards what? Well, that that's kind of the, that's kind of the element of faith that comes into this because it's kind of like, well, forward toward greater truth. Why? Because truth is redemptive because the, the, the more truth you can access, the more you can embody it and the more it produces a life and a perspective that you might call good. And so that's the faith. That's the faith that if I pursue things in that way, things will come out as best as they can. hundred percent. Yeah. Have you, ha, have you experienced, you know, and, and so if we extend this a little bit, perhaps certain things are more transformational than others, or at least inspire, or at least represent the opportunity for transformation. You know, and I, I talk about a lot of them on the show, right? So Bitcoin has been, and Bitcoin is a big one, maybe the biggest one, which is a heretical comment for some. Um, psychedelics have been, you know, incredibly uh, interesting and and impactful in my life. But I can imagine that engaging in the work that you're now engaged in, right, confronting the sacrifice of life every day, such that you you and the people around you and the, you know the people you engage with might continue to propagate their own. I can see that being a very transformational action to engage in as well. Um, but maybe not. I mean, you can, you can answer that for me, I suppose. No, I, I would, I would answer that in the affirmative. Psychedelics have also been impactful on my life as well in a different way. Um, sure. There's something about manual labor, working outside, working with animals and the life and death component, which is really, which is really something to describe it. Perhaps it's a little bit ineffable, <laughs> but it is, life in all of its glory you know in the fullness of it you get to see um the full circle of life from birth to death you get to see the cycle of the seasons and really be immersed in them while they happen that's super psychologically healthy and grounding thing to do right um and if i had to choose one of those two things i would psychedelics and whatever i feel might have been revealed to me through that and 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 this simple lifestyle that i have now I choose this lifestyle. Although that's, it's a hard thing to say because, you know, psychedelics are part of my past. Yeah, exactly. But I don't need them anymore. I I just don't. Can you put some more meat on that bone? Pardon the pun. Well, (laughs) 
Uh, just for me, I have had really impactful psychedelic experiences. The first time I ever took acid, it just, I was drank a lot in my twenties. Right. I spent a lot of time in school. And after my first acid trip, it just completely turned off the desire to drink for me. Like that's a huge thing. And, yeah. and this isn't a lot of people have experienced this. Of course, mm -hmm. the next day I, you know, internet searched it. And like a lot of people have had that same experience. Turns out yeah. LSD is one of the most effective treatments for addiction that anybody's ever found. They well, just, you know, who made started, it illegal. Who, who started AA? Bill, uh, fuck, I'm blanking on, on his name right now. Anyways, people will know. I think it's Bill something. But he um, initially, when they got started, if I'm not mistaken, advocated for LSD being part of the approach to quitting alcohol, likely for that very reason. And I think it was instrumental in his own, if I'm not mistaken. But again, I, if anyone's very interested, you know, look look into it and you can see the details. But yeah. Yeah. And it would not surprise me one bit. Like, I think before that experience, I would have been you know, like, what? But now, like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course it did. Mm -hmm. Why do you think um, that is? I don't know. I mean, for me, it just made the whole drunk experience plainly clear to me what it was actually doing to me, how debased it was, mm -hmm. how, how, you know, I, it was, I, you can't describe psycho psychedelic experiences very well. Right. But the, the inner world that I experienced then with respect to the alcohol was just frightening. And I, I had, I'd still drink now. Um, but probably for a year after that, I could barely stomach alcohol. Wow. So, yeah. It, yeah. I, I find that again, we're, we're dealing with ineffable experiences really. And every time I do have a psychedelic experience, I think of my attempts to articulate it. I'm like, you buffoon, what are, what are you even doing? Like just, you know, but then I come back down and you can't help but try. Um, but I do think, you know, broadly speaking, without getting into details, for me, at least, the height of that experience is, well, pure awareness, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and alcohol is basically the, induces the antithesis of that, which is, you know, as you said, debased, debauchery, you know, an unclear mind, noise, unconsciousness. Unconsciousness. Eventually, you know, like literal unconsciousness. Yes. And so it's completely the antithesis. And when, when you're able to when you're confronted with the, the the extreme, you know, of those two poles, and when when you're when you get a sense for the value of awareness, when you when you really see how aware you can be, how how your perception can be so seemingly clear, so seemingly grounded to our prior conversation in truth, it really casts a negative light on unconsciousness, on the behavior that induces that and the behavior that stems from unconsciousness. And then you have a spectrum and you can, you know, then you can see things on that spectrum where you have total unconsciousness, literal, but also just, you know, metaphorical unconsciousness, let's say, and you have total clarity, total awareness, total pure consciousness. And then, then you can judge all of your activities on that spectrum. What are the things that are generating a, a clearer awareness, a clearer consciousness, one that's seemingly more grounded in truth, whatever they may be, whether it's a type of diet, exercise, work, interactions with other people, relationships you might have, what are the things in my life that are moving me more toward the unconscious, mm -hmm. right? Again, whatever they may be. And then I, I find, you know, if you're looking for one of the valid reasons for potentially exploring psychedelics, maybe it's simply to 
have a clearer perception of that range so that you can you can judge your behavior more effectively and you can see kind of where it falls on that range um but yeah it's uh it's interesting uh, that, that your response was so immediate you know just like whoa mm -hmm. fuck that shit you know that yeah that ain't no good yeah the, the heightened consciousness and awareness that you're describing is, is maddening. That's why you can't do LSD all the time. <laughs> but, but the recently the times I've tried psychedelics, it hasn't, I haven't had any bad trips. It just hasn't felt good to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know why I think now if I were to do psychedelics, I'd just, I have like a young child and fatherhood is so overwhelming. I think that being on psychedelics would be super overwhelming to me right now. Hmm. Well, fair I enough. would think a lot about them. Yeah. You know, my wife and, and daughter. Um, and I don't want to be sitting around tripping, thinking about them. I want to yeah. be spending time with them. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. And I, I, I think psychedelics are the type of thing that you want to be kind of convicted in your approach to them. Like, when you're going in, you want to go in with the right, well, set and setting, of course, but you want to kind of go in ready to go, like ready for what's going to come at you because, right. you know, they do require a type of courage and a type of letting go that you, you can't really be wanting to, you can't really be concerned about other things. I mean, in the, at the end of the day, I think part of the, I think it's necessary in order to access the height of that experience to let go of everything. And if you're mm -hmm. not, you know, in a, in a place where you're, really willing or comfortable to do that, then perhaps it's best not to engage in that. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a proponent for the regular use of psychedelics at all. I mean, the mm -hmm. first and foremost, it's doing it responsibly and properly. And there's a lot that goes into that. But second is, is infrequently, you mm -hmm. know, like mm -hmm. whether it's annual, biannual, every five years. And, and again, everyone's going to find their own groove with that. I mean, Alan, right. I think it's Alan Watts and, uh, not that I'm a you know massive fan or anything, but I think his one liner was, uh, you know, something like if you if you talk to God or I'm, I'm going to butcher it now, but it's something like after you've talked to God, you know, like hang up the phone, something like that. <laughs> like you you don't need yeah. to keep keep going back to it. But and that that hasn't been my experience. I, I I still derive a lot of value from infrequently going into that space, and it helps me clear out the accumulated cobwebs of however many years have passed since I've had an experience like that. And I, I, I like it, but I also tremble at the prospect of it for that reason, because I know I'm going to have pushed some things in the, into the darkness. I know I'm going to have accumulated some bullshit that I, uh, shouldn't have. And I find the experiences challenging, but helpful and therapeutic for that reason. Cause I am confronted with my bullshit and I'm, I'm able to see more clearly how to kind of reorient myself properly and, and, and clear, you know, clean house basically mm -hmm. as part of that experience. And so for me, the cadence is, is a bit more regular than what it sounds for you sounds to be for you. But, you know, again, this is highly, highly personal and everyone has mm -hmm. to, if, if they, if they investigate it at all, they have to do it in a way that uh, they determine is best, not anybody yeah. else outside of them. Yeah, for sure. Um, and there was a time in my life where I was really pursuing psychedelic experiences because I wanted to know what they were like and understand the experiences. And I was having lots of cool things happen. And um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take psychedelics again, I'm sure. But I know now that any psychedelic experience that I'm supposed to have is going to come to me at the right time. Yeah. And that's how it's been happening. I had one in 2020 that was 
that where the, the where the, all the crazy things that happen on psychedelics that are inexplicable happen. It's not even just like stuff that I imagine shared experiences with other people, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, at this point, um, I, I, yeah, I stopped pursuing it. I just know that it will come when it's needed at the right time. I do think it's, um, I think it's interesting, but even if I can say this potentially beneficial, like it, I, like I, your line of work is what I'm getting at. Like, I, I do think that these, these experiences can be so, what's the right way to characterize them? Well, let's just say so otherworldly that sometimes people have them and not only, you know, and I, I don't think there's, you know, psychedelics aren't addictive substances, but the mindset or the perspective that they induce can be not always beneficial, right? They can be too fantastical. They can be too otherworldly. They And I get it, right? Because you, if, if you really are confronting some sort of profound truth, and then you come back into the world as it is today, where there's so much untruth, there's so many lies. I mean, we're, we're, we live in a system that's predicated on falsity and, and corruption and untruth. And it can see, you can be so develop such an aversion to that as a result of hanging out in the, the opposite end of the spectrum. And, you know, a lot of people do kind of check out, right? That's why you, you have these like enclaves in Bali and Tulum and wherever, where people are just like, you know what, fuck it, not, not engaging in anything anymore. And I, I, I empathize with that. I, I felt that way for a while, but this is why I think it's, well, first of all, first of all, this is why I think Bitcoin is such a a gift because I think a lot of the principles that you encounter in that end of the spectrum can now be operable into the broader world, into markets, into interpersonal exchanges because of Bitcoin. Like I think those values are imbued in Bitcoin. And so now you have the way for them to propagate out into the world where prior to Bitcoin, I don't think there was a really good mechanism for doing so. And I think that's why a lot of people did kind of check out. Um, but I do also think that in, in tandem with that, having a practice that grounds you so much in like physical material reality that brings you face to face with the the truth of reality, which is sacrifice, right? It is the fact that you have limited resources as does every other, you know, sentient being that you're going to interact with. And you have to determine what of the potential opportunities in your future, what of the potential, you know, ideas you have about the future you're going to sacrifice in order to make the the take the actions you take and recognize that even in taking them you're exchanging your limited time and resources to take them so every action you take is inherently a sacrifice or you might call an exchange but still you're giving away something in order to get another and i feel like you know those things that really ground you in that are a very important counterbalance to the the fantastical world on the other end of the spectrum and what is more of a a counterbalance to that than on a daily basis or you know often confronting the literal sacrifice of life such that other lives might continue to propagate in the best way possible and so i i i think that that uh like intense reality component of these experiences is missing from a lot of people's approaches and they end up not it becomes imbalanced and i i think you know confronting reality if i can just use that as a broad term is a very important aspect of of these pursuits and or you know in, in developing into uh as good a, you know as good a person as good an individual as as you can generally mm-hmm. yeah there's there's a certain type of person that really needs to go to the grocery store and have a very sterilized version <clears throat> of, of meat mm-hmm. you know has to have a certain color can't have any liquid on it um 
and and I think they sort of want to pretend that it's not coming from what it's coming from. But you got to you got to realize life feeds on life, and like you said, there's like there's a sacrifice, there's a sacrificial component to that too. Um, but consciousness doesn't disappear. It it was never you know solely contained in in the vessels that come and go. The form dissolves, but that consciousness persists in com- in complete form. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. The farms that I work at have the exact same amount of animals basically all the time. Consciousness continues to cycle. And um, I well, this I, is you, you, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. I was just going to say this is one of the uh, the insights that seemingly is delivered. You know, oftentimes in these experiences, is that somehow the consciousness that is animating your perspective, somehow an aspect of your awareness, uh, will not perish with your physical body. You know, it, it goes back somewhere or another, another being capable of receiving it receives it, but there's something undifferentiated about your awareness that has nothing to do with any of the, the things that you identify with as you that persists beyond. And, uh, in that way, you know, as you say, consciousness, it's kind of like energy it's neither created nor destroyed. It's just transferred. And it would mm-hmm. make a lot of sense if that was the, the nature of consciousness as well. And in some way that obviously we don't fully understand yet. Right. Perhaps we can't understand. Perhaps. You know? Yeah. And perhaps we'll, we'll only get to the point of being able to say, maybe, you know, <laughs> which whatever descriptions we give to it and whatever understanding that we can, uh, can that we can hold in these minds of it. Um, but, uh, but the, the working with the animals, it reminds me of something you said too, on one of your podcasts where you, you describe Bitcoin as an extreme form of ownership. And then you made the point that that extreme form of ownership, because it's not like anything else, like ever. I can't even think of anything that's, that's, that, that, that's the same level of ownership, except like over, your, over yourself. Mm-hmm. And Bitcoin even enables you to have more ownership over yourself, right? And it starts to make you contrast. This is still kind of your words, I'm paraphrasing, but it, it makes you contrast other areas of your life where you do not have such a high degree of ownership, right? And there's a big uh, three, I would say, that people identify and Bitcoiners have identified. It's money, food, and energy. And it's really obvious how like we're not sovereign with respect to those other things, right? Mm. It's hard to be self-sovereign with respect to food and energy. You need a community of people to do this, ultimately. But that was one of the big motivations with me coming into this industry was I wanted to, if, if, if the if the globalists shut down meat production and make it so you can't get factory farmed meat, there's not going to be a lot of meat on the market, right? Mm-hmm. If they decide that cows are too bad for the environment, which is insane, these animals that have existed for hundreds of thousands of years and used to exist in massive packs all over the place, where, by the way, when we remove them from those areas, thanks on Tap Growth for giving me all this great literature, we remove them from those areas, those things started to desertify. They turned into deserts without those. And why, why would that be surprising to us? the bison or whatever ruminants large pack animals that were there aren't like a separate thing they are part of one single ecosystem Mm -hmm. that developed together right so this notion that and maybe i'm just getting on a random tangent but this notion that like cows are gonna like destroy the the world or something is so on its face insane well, factory farming is not necessarily good for the environment and it has a lot of pollution right there because of the way it's done but like ruminants don't eat grain in nature and they have a totally different behavior right are you suggesting that the three-letter agencies that presume to know everything and lord over everyone in the world might either be 
not know what they're talking about or propagating an untruth intentionally. Are you, are you suggesting that? It's a hundred percent intentional in my opinion. <laughs> I think they know that these things cause deserts. And I think they're using this as a way to control people. You may be right, but e either way, I, whatever motivation it is or wherever they're coming from, uh, their perspective and, you know, their overtures and their attempts are, are already so thoroughly discredited in my mind that it, it doesn't really matter what I attribute either malice or incompetence. It doesn't matter. You know, it's just how we, how yeah. we move around them, move forward without yeah. their influence as much as and, possible. And what's the best way to do that? The best way is to have the most ownership over yourself, right? To be self-responsible as much as possible. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, it's the final one listed in the Bible as a fruit of the spirit, self-control. It's super difficult. I can't imagine trying to control other people. Like it's a daily, uh, it's a daily struggle for me to have like ultimate self-control just over right. my emotions and the way I act and everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not to mention like external things, like how I eat and money and energy and things like that. So well, it's the hero's journey, right? The, the, the constant, you know, quest to encounter those difficulties, encounter those impediments, those blockages, and, and to try to refine yourself towards some ideal that you clearly have in your mind, even if it's not perfectly visible at all times. But there, there's something that's motivating the striving, right? And we alluded to some of them before, like, you know, pursuit of truth or a pursuit of embodying virtue or virtues in, in some way. And you falter and you fumble and you you fuck up often, but there is a reason you, you stand up and dust yourself off and continue to try to move towards them. And again, I mean, this is, I think this is part of the reason why humans have developed such sophisticated systems of, of religious faith, let's say, or religious ideas. Now, obviously uh, many of them have gone astray and have become corrupted and have been misinterpreted throughout the years. I think that's a fairly safe thing to say, but I, I don't think in principle the the approach and certainly not all the wisdom that's contained in there are therefore uh, sh should therefore be dismissed because there's, there's a tremendous amount of wisdom for orienting yourself properly in life and pursuing the mm -hmm. proper things contained within them. And that's mm -hmm. another thing that's super interesting about, you know, all this is the, the reemergence of considering those things. I mean, as you know, like Bitcoin kind of induces a different perspective on the world. And that means that kind of everything has to be reconsidered. If you're going to construct a perspective based on truth, you kind of got to look at, you're not just looking at the money and you're not just looking at economics, but you're looking at, you know, politics and food and health and, and everything. And you're now you've got to kind of remake sense of the world. And it's mm -hmm. not kind of, it's not like you, it's not have to as a burden, because if you are pursuing truth, it's a great opportunity. You're like, wow, now I, I'm more able to construct a perspective, but I do have to put in the work to construct it, to try to construct it as, as truthfully as possible and recapitulate, you know, all these things that were formerly, I, I, I took for granted perhaps as truth. And now I'm realizing, you know, perhaps they aren't truth, or at least a, a more refined perception of them is, is now available or is warranted. And so you, you engage in that process and, you know, you're delivered to a, a, a new or refined perspective as a result. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Self-ownership is super important, man. And, and, and I, I, sorry. sorry. No, 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 my bad. You go. I was just going to say self-ownership is super important, and it, and it really truly seems to be the most powerful resistance that we can give to the shit going on in the world today. The three-letter agencies, the globalists, the WEF, whoever, whoever they are, right? Yeah. 
I, I don't know exactly who they are and I don't know exactly what their plans and intentions are, but I know that if I don't operate inside their system to as the largest degree possible, that's the biggest F you that I can give them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if they do, you- if, if they do shut down beef production or whatever, I want it to not affect me. I want it to be able that in my community, we can still make that happen without relying on those giant farms. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like, I don't know how to guarantee that for everybody, but I, I can only advocate that people take ownership over themselves and try to position themselves in a way that they can continue to live the lives that they want without the permission of other people or without the enabling from some other entity. Yeah. This is, you know, so often, you know, you, you peel back the onion enough on, you know, in, in trying to discern truth and you, you wind up at paradoxes, you know, and perhaps that's a, that's because of somehow the circular or pattern like nature of so many things that, you know, of of perhaps reality itself, you know, it's just pattern after pattern nestled within pattern nestled within pattern. And perhaps that's why that's somewhat paradoxical, but one of them certainly seems to be that, discipline in that way even subordination to certain values and and things like that even if it it, it seems limiting initially but if you engage in it the right way it's actually what's most liberating and i think you know one of the paradoxes of course is like that idea that discipline or greater responsibility is actually what allows you to experience the greatest degree of freedom which is kind of what you're talking about right you more responsibility more take more responsibility for all those things like food and energy and all those things in your life. And even, you know, take more responsibility or have more discipline for, you know, the own, your own uh, confrontations in your own mind, right? The things that are, are that you're facing in your own mind and your own life and your own relationships. And that approach is what delivers to you a greater sense of freedom or liberation versus what would most commonly be thought of freedom is like, Oh, I don't, don't have to take responsibility for anything. Somebody else is taking care of those things for me. And the the paradox is that that is actually what induces, or, you know, the product of that is dependence. The product of that is, you know, uh, captured of some kind, the product of that is slavery or, 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 you know, prisonhood of some kind like that. But it seems like, you know, if you're, if you're looking at a higher level, if you're not kind of seeing things as clearly as you might, that that is what true freedom is. And of course, a lot of people in the world today, I think the reason why the, the world is in the state it is, is because a lot of people are tricked into thinking that way. Yes. And of course, they'll even defend it, you know, to the death and that their perspective is right on that. But they're every they're so, you know, again, matrix quote, which I've been invoking a lot lately, but, you know, so hopelessly dependent on the system that they'll fight to protect it. Right. Because they think that that because, as you said earlier, it's very it's it's very unlikely that someone's going to argue with the value of freedom. It's just that. People mistake what they have for freedom, right? They're not yes. perceiving it, it properly. And so um, I think, the, again, that the, the paradox here is that what seems like freedom is actually, you know, a form of slavery, let's say, or a form of, you know, uh, being a prisoner. And what seems like a burden, taking the most burden, what seems like taking the most responsibility, what seems like disciplining yourself to the, but what seems like disciplining yourself is actually the means of, of accessing the greatest degree or the truest degree of, of freedom or liberation that is actually available. And I mean that both in the literal physical manifest world, as well as in that you know metaphysical world of ideas and consciousness. I think that the kind of same principle operates. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, it's in and that claim that basically dependency is freedom is right what it what it reduces to. That's that's not just not exactly true. That's an inversion of the truth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A complete inversion of the truth, and it's not a good thing to not work. We're we want to work. We're supposed to be working. Whatever that is, we want to be putting our energies into things and and creating something in the world. Like there's a strong drive. I have. I feel a strong drive to do it. I feel incredibly happy when I'm working. I feel incredibly present when I'm working with my hands. And my mind's not wandering. It's how value emerges in the world, both inside of yourself and potentially in the interpersonal world of, of created products and services. But like if value is what it's all about, right? Ascent, you know, moving toward greater value and, and embodying greater value and virtue in life, you need to perform those sacrifices or exchanges, i.e. work, mm -hmm. in order to birth it. It doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't happen otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think I agree. I mean, I think it's entirely fundamental. The, yeah. the, the, the goal should not be not to work. It should be to work in the things that you find most valuable or derive the greatest meaning from. And in doing so, you propagate certain values into the world and you birth certain value for yourself and other people. And mm -hmm. that might be the whole name of the game is just doing that continuing to refine how you do that such that the value that you are bringing into the world through your actions and the value that you are embodying through your actions is higher up on that hierarchy, you know, and who knows what's at the top of it, right? The, the idea of God, I, I guess. And, mm -hmm. and is it not the most logical thing to do to try to ascend that hierarchy and be a representation of it? hundred percent. Yeah. And, and it's, it makes me think about Concepts like UBI, universal basic income, it's a really bad idea. Even if people, oh, yeah. I think, sort of believe that it's a good thing for people, to me, it's like you're basically just telling people we don't need you. We're just going to pay you to stay out of the way. You don't need to work. You don't need to do anything. Stay in your apartments. We'll go back to 2020 and you can just stay in your apartment forever and we'll send you the checks and you can, you can uh, order your groceries delivered or just have your food delivered to you constantly. It's kind of what it feels like to me. It feels disgusting. Mm-hmm. And we're going to rob other people to make it happen. I mean, it's just from both ends. It's it's completely, again, it's an, it's an inversion of what is good and true. It's, an, it's, it's a complete inversion of it. And I think a lot of proponents of those ideas really feel like it's a benevolent thing and they do not see it as robbery of other people. Mm -hmm. But it is. Yeah. You know, and if you want to extend it too, like, as you say, it's, it's, it's paying people to do nothing, like get out of the way, just exist. And so mm -hmm. right now, what that looks like, let's take it to a little bit of a, a further extreme and say, okay, you know, you're paid to live. You can stay in your little cubicle, your little square box apartment, and you can watch Netflix and you can order Uber Eats and, and basically just, you know, be a vegetable, but not, mm -hmm. not engage in the hero's journey of life. Let's say to, to just stay in the matrix. It's, it's like literally the matrix. Le yeah. But that, that was going to be my point. It's like when technology give technology another 10, 20, 50 years to develop. Well, how much do all those constituent parts kind of collapse into each other. And so, you know, all, you know, your living space and how you sustain yourself and all that just gets more efficient, so-called. Mm -hmm. And so it can be delivered more easily until you literally are, you know, put to sleep in a box and say, Hey, at least you're alive. And we're, we're, yeah. we're helping you live for an extra hundred years. So just, right. you know, step in this uh, pod and, you know, zip up the thing or be emerged in the, in the solution, whatever it is. And don't mm -hmm. worry, you'll, you'll be alive, you'll be fed, you'll be healthy, everything will be taken care of for you. And you'll have absolutely no agency and you'll have absolute, you won't right. be able to engage at all in the whole purpose of life, which may very well be 
your own moral refinement and the, the you know the propagation of the species with that as the the, the kind of common thread and you mm-hmm. you won't have to engage in any of that you'll just you just be pure material existence without any meaning whatsoever uh-huh. wouldn't that be great and right. is that not is that not just an extension of of as you said you know the the idea of ubi today mm-hmm. 100% it is i i think it's i think it's connected and while a lot of people that are behind it really think that's a good thing there's a lot of people behind it that don't and know exactly what we're talking about and are still pushing for it it's weird to like you know wake up in the world today and see dystopian uh movies and books like the matrix in 1984 basically like some people read them and thought like oh so that's what we're going for (laughs) like no you missed the point that's terrible we shouldn't be doing those things i do wonder man i i have no doubt that there are people in the world that Again, I, I don't think there's many people that think they're evil, but I do think there are many people that will pursue their own interests at the expense of basically everyone, ba- you know, the whole world sometimes. And in doing that, you su- you subject people to the horrors of of evil, basically, even yeah. though you think all you're doing is getting yours. All you think right. you're doing is, you know, uh, serving your own interests or, or responding to your own incentives. Mm-hmm. And that's why, and that's why the structure that determines which incentives emerge in a society, in a culture, in a market, are so fundamentally important. And there we go. Why, you know, we wind mm-hmm. up back at Bitcoin because if it can't be corrupted and if people can't be stolen from, then all those incentives that typically would exist when systems allow for those things no longer exist. And so, those aspects of our nature, those aspects of you know our blindness to our own evil, let's say, uh, can no longer be upregulated and are probably downregulated substantially. And so, you know, all of us have the capacity for, you know, both the utmost good and the utmost evil, but to what degree do the systems that we engage in, you know, that, that constitute our interpersonal interactions such that we can cooperate and ostensibly achieve the things that we want to achieve, um, how much do they allow for those things and how much do they, do they dial down the, lesser elements or lesser aspects of our nature. And I think that is one of the, the the huge hopes of Bitcoin is that, sure, like there's no utopia. We're all totally fucked. We can be devils or we can be, you know, God, basically. Uh, but how much does the, the, how much do the systems that we use to live our lives and strive toward meaning allow for, or how much, do, sorry, how much is either end of the spectrum incentivized or allowed for and you just it's a simple thing like if it's less allowed for right if if it's if we were at a higher the the writer end of the spectrum that we were referring to earlier then it stands to reason you will see far less of that behavior because it simply won't be incentivized and uh, i mean what happens when we exist and in, in ex- exclusively exist in a system like that man it's a well it's why we're all here right because it's so so compelling you know what that could be and such an improvement and hopefully a lack of that inversion you know that we're always going to have ignorance and we're always going to have you know people that want to take shortcuts and 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 people for whatever reason trauma or you know whatever that uh, engage in in malicious activity or don't care about other people and are and just want to engage in self-serving behavior at the expense of anyone and everything 
but it does seem like it, that is going to be dramatically dialed down and man, what a world we, we might have on our hands if, if we can achieve that. I, yeah, a hundred percent agree with that. I just, if, if we continue to have success, even in just the direction that we're having success, like the kind of societal changes that could come about because people stop acting in line with the incentives of a corrupt system mm. and start acting in line with whatever incentives they really personally have, right? Living in line with the truth as best as they can see it. It's going to be a very, very different world. And people, people go to work right now because they have to work in an industry that's basically subsidized by the U.S. government, right? Mm-hmm. Like all the money's fake and everybody knows their jobs are fake too. Literally by the surveys, I'm like 60% of people think that if they disappeared from the job, there would be no difference in output or anything. And I have worked at jobs like that. It's, it's almost like it's, yeah, you, the, the, the power of the existing system is so great to override incentives that, 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 that that's one of the most beautiful things about Bitcoin, right? There's these internal incentives in the system um, and in system and, and in, sorry, incentives really work. Mm-hmm. It just has to be a subtle nudge. You wouldn't even think some of these things that happen at a lower level would have these higher order effects that they do, but they absolutely do. And having a central bank that basically gives you an implicitly controlled economy, right? You can make people work in whatever fields you want and crush any industries that you don't like. Yeah. I think, and as we move, as we move just to conclude power away from that and back to people in a decentralized way. So they choose, you know, their, their true incentives, not these false incentives and they follow them in the way they want. That's, I, I mean, I can't imagine that wouldn't have a huge impact on the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think all in hindsight, when people study our time and let's say even the pre-Bitcoin era, it'll be so obvious how much of a, a burden on the human spirit systems of, of governance and money were and the cultures that they produced. And so I genuinely see Bitcoin as, you know, something maybe if it's it's prime effect is unleashing the beauty of the human spirit whatever you know i don't know what form that takes but it seems like it's going to allow us as you said like most people not only know their jobs are useless and what does that say about their own value right but it doesn't allow them to engage in what i think is like a holy process of what we referred to earlier it's like how do you take your limited time and energy resources and whatever reverence you have for life or your own life that's what it is. And what are you exchanging that for? And if you're exchanging that for a job you absolutely hate and a money that's corrupt and that allows for you to be stolen from, then what does that do to your spirit? What does that do to your ambition for engaging what you know to be somewhere deep down most good and true and beautiful? And I think what it does to it is it suppresses it greatly. And when that is no longer a burden on you when that has when that is no longer imposed on you given a sufficient amount of time of course and however many how i don't know how quickly this process happens it's evident to me that it's happening quite quickly in the you know hardcore bitcoiners let's say but mm-hmm. on mass who knows but i think when that's removed when it's no longer when that burden is no longer even possible to be imposed then i just think you get people that engage in that holy process of deciding what they sacrifice for what they get in return deciding what they sacrifice uh, to determine what value they are responsible for creating in the world and what Mm -hmm. responsibility that is, uh, how much of a responsibility that is. 
I think that produces a world where the better aspects of ourselves are able to be represented more, emerge more, be refined more, um, and more clearly kind of strive toward. And uh, that's, that's really the genesis of like what you talk about, that, that weird transformation that people go through with Bitcoin, right? It's the genesis of being like, holy crap, I can express my values in the world the way I want. Like I right. never thought about doing that before. Mm -hmm. So now like, what do I want to say? What do exactly. I want to express? What are my values? Like what, exactly. what should they, what should they be? What are the best things to be oriented by? What are the best things to determine that sacrifice? And those are huge fucking questions that most people have never been in a, a position to even be a, like, it's not relevant. It's not, it wasn't a relevant consideration because mm -hmm. they didn't have the opportunity. It didn't matter anyways. Yeah. Yeah. It's a trippy thing. <laughs> trippy thing indeed. Um, well, we got anything else? Sorry, um, to cut you, sorry to cut you off there. No, no, uh, you didn't cut me off at all. Um, I I had kind of brainstormed over the last couple of weeks about anything that I might share. I'm completely happy with this conversation. If you want to end it now, we can. If you want it to go on a little bit, I, I had thought of one thing that I would like to just share with people broadly, just yeah. related to basically gardening and producing your own food. I think that's super important. We've kind of touched on it before. And I could share a couple practical steps to get started. And I, I would say those, those steps are as such. And this won't take a long time for me or anything. Um, I, I really like um, the idea of shaking your rancher's hand or your farmer's hand. You know, find local farmers. There's probably a lot more than you think. They surround your city. And you don't know about them because they're tucked away somewhere on a farm. And it goes through a big distribution path to get to you at the grocery store. They can't sell directly to a grocery store. They have to... In where, where I live, people have to take their animals. If they want to sell to a grocery store, they have to take it to a USDA facility and it has to go be slaughtered there. There's none in my county. And then it has to be taken to a USDA cut and wrap facility. And then it can go to grocery stores, I believe. I'm not super familiar with those regulations because I, like I said, I, I do it on the custom exempt market where we, we can't sell it to supermarkets. But those farmers are there and, and you can meet them and you should meet them and you should support them. The, the more support they get, the better that, industry will get. And um, in my experience, all the farmers that I've met around are already doing the things that we value it, or we think we value in agriculture. In, in our ignorance, we're not farmers, right? We have these ideas for how farming should go. And we really don't know because we don't actually work in that. There's a lot of complications and other, other things that go into it. But the farmers are, are, that I've met have all been very, very integrous, very, very intelligent, very talented as well. So that's, I think, one thing. The other thing is, to whatever degree you can, on your whatever one sixteenth of an acre little tract home, which is kind of my situation here, uh, practice gardening. It's a process. You, it, you, you have to get yourself in line with the seasons, which takes an entire year. So really, you only get one observation per year, if you think about it that way, in most places. In North America, you, get, you have you know, a winter season where things don't grow. So you have one observation per year to do this. Um, and it'll take time to develop up skills with that. So I would suggest take that up as a hobby, drop your bad hobbies and, and start to take up something that's really important and could be really, really important in the future. Um, I would also say to read books on these topics. I've read a bunch of books that were recommended by some Bitcoiners on YouTube, or not on YouTube, on Twitter, and Untapped Growth some books that he recommended. I've just finished a couple that he recommended. There's like, they're so amazing. 
like the content of these books, right? The historical perspective, all these things that I'd never thought about before or really ever put in, into the right context. And, and it also helps you understand how nature and life works. And that helps you become a better gardener, say. The second thing, or the third thing, I don't know what number I'm on now, is I would say try to try to incorporate some animal inputs. There's not really any successful models of agriculture that 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 aren't dependent on petrochemicals that don't have animal inputs. So animals are very important for for the people like me who have just a small area. Um, I think the first natural idea is to have egg laying chickens. It's a great idea. Um, they eat. They're like little dinosaurs. They'll eat anything. You could grow food in your garden for them, get their eggs. You're not going to be able to grow all their food, certainly not at first. Um, so you'll have to buy feed for them. But uh, they're going to poop out all this rich nitrogen that you could compost and then use to build soil to grow more food for your animals. And it doesn't matter if your food comes out super covered in bugs. It's just more protein for the chickens. They don't care about that. That's great. Um, and another one that I think would be a great recommendation for a lot of people, and it would work in cold climates very well, is to keep rabbits for meat. Um, you can get a few six foot long cages. You'll have to keep them elevated, keep them in a cool area. And they have a really good meat to feed, uh, feed to meat conversion ratio. They propagate fast. So you'll have to have a few mares to breed. They can each get their own cage, let's say. You'll have to have a buck that you breed them with. You could have his own cage, but he can kind of move into the apartments of the ladies he's breeding as he goes. And then uh, their gestation is only about a month. They'll have babies. The babies will stay with the mom for about a month and you can move them to the other set of cages uh, where they'll live for a couple months until they're at, at weight to eat. You can get, so it's really like a two, it maybe take four months to go from breeding to eating but since you can breed every two months, because once the babies move out, a month, a month gestation, a month to raise, and then you can rebreed. So maybe a little more than two months to rebreed that rabbit, you can get up to six batches of rabbits per year based off of that. Same thing. Rabbits produce a lot of manure. That's great. You can compost that manure, use it to make soil, to grow vegetables for your rabbits. And rabbit meat's great. I don't, in North America, I don't know if it's popular. I just discovered it, you know, uh, going out to farms. I never see it at supermarkets. It's something you would see on menus. So I, they probably sell these things to, to restaurants more than individuals. But um, one reason I'm not doing all of that at my house is because I have, I have a rental, right? Mm -hmm. So, but I have family in town and I'm trying to do that where I can, when I can. Um, but I think just with like, I'm, I, I guess I'm just trying to give a couple ideas to get people's uh, creative juices flowing because I think a lot of people are interested in this and don't know exactly where to start and there's no perfect answer for that except to say like just get started you're going to have successes and failures and look at it all as one big experiment where you're gaining observations and experience with this thing um, but also as a caveat if you want to raise meat rabbits you're going to have to kill them so you know bear that in mind right yeah I think that's great practical advice because I agree that well, many people are interested in in greater sovereignty, sovereignty and freedom in various areas of their life. And as you said earlier, food is, you know, a huge one of them. And mm -hmm. I think they've been inspired by, you know, Untapped and others who have started to really, uh, you know, pick up that mantle and and espouse the importance of this and talk about food sovereignty and stuff like that. And so, you know, I think it's great that you finish off with a little practical advice after we uh, we got a little cosmic there. So my last question is... Um, 
just out of curiosity, why Deadpool in the, in your Twitter handle? I'll tell you offline. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Well, look, man, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time for this discussion. Really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll do it again sometime either here or in the flesh. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate you a lot. All right, brother. Take care. You too. Thank you.